Welcome back to season three of my podcast. I am Amanda Blackwood, the survivor. As many of you know, I wrote my autobiography as a survivor of human trafficking called Custom Justice. For those of you who didn't know, now you do. Keeping in line with that, this entire season is going to be focused on interviewing other trauma survivors who did or plan to write about their own experiences as trauma survivors and how they overcame their past. Get ready to hear from some truly incredible people. Please hang on for a moment through this brief advertisement. This is what currently pays for the show. Of course, I will also take donations through PayPal to keep the show running, or you can show support by a simple book purchase. I have quite a few out there. Just look for books by Amanda Blackwood on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Your purchase does go to helping to support local organizations that help fight human trafficking also. So tonight's podcast episode is going to contain a bit more of a trigger warning than usual. As some of you know, September is Suicide Awareness Month, and my guest today, Maria Burgess, lost her son to suicide. We're going to be discussing the impact that had on her and her entire family, and I'd like to encourage you to stay for the hard parts, but I also want to caution you to have patience with yourself and to know your own emotional limitations. This isn't an easy subject for anyone, especially for Maria, but discussing it can help to prevent it or educate others on how to deal with it after the fact. Maria is a mental health professional, a mother, an artist, and a life adventurer. When she isn't trying to promote mental health awareness, she loves to read, hike, and paint. So she's just a normal human like the rest of us, but I think you guys are going to get a lot of value out of what we talk about. Um, Maria, thank you for joining me today and welcome to the show. Thank you. So Maria, um, I, I kind of touched a little bit on what it is that we're going to be talking about, but let's talk a little bit about you first. Where did you grow up? What was your family like life when you were a kid? Well, I grew up in Utah. Um, both parents in my home, I have um, four siblings. So it's kind of the middle child and just kind of a no- pretty normal, pretty normal background as far as nothing too significant in my, my childhood. Um up in a supportive home but I think one of the things that's kind of most people can relate to is that there's a lot of times where we will distinguish like families that have mental health issues and and families that don't but what I have found as I've lived my life and and in my career field is every family has mental health issues they're just mostly undiagnosed Um, and I haven't yet found a family that doesn't have something. They just don't necessarily know what it is or things like that. So mental health, um, the stigma behind it is so damaging and such a barrier for things. But as we start to accept that this is just like our physical health and it's, it's everywhere. Um, it really opens up the doors to just improving family life, improving our communities and everything. So, um, so I would say in my, my background growing up, there was things like that, that I didn't really know what they were growing up. And then as I've grown, I'm like, Oh, there's some things (laughs) or recognized or had a name. Right. And even if they did have a name, they weren't probably well-recognized names because it was stuff Mm -hmm. that people didn't talk about. No. And so much research that wasn't done, you know, each generation is getting a little better, a little more informed. 
So that's nice yeah. to see. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I touch on pretty much every single episode is that there's so many different forms of trauma, so many different types, so many different uniforms that it wears. Um, And it doesn't even have to be associated with uniforms, even though people automatically think PTSD and trauma is directly related to and only related to people in the war zone. But we all experience it in our own ways. Absolutely. So... Tell me a little bit about your son or, you know, you tell me your whole story, but when was he born? How old was he when everything happened? And I'm going to let you take it. Yeah. Well, I'll just interrupt if there's something you want to specifically know, but, um, so I married young. I married when I was 18. Um, it was not necessarily my life plan. I was pretty career driven, but, um, met, um, a wonderful man that, I've had four children with, and our first born was Joshua. So he was born in 2004, and he, um, we were actually in the military, so my husband's active duty um, for just a little bit longer, but so our kids have grown up all over the country and have quite a bit of resilience from that. So that's kind of their story that they've had to adapt and learn. Um, They have family friends. We have family friends in the military that we've had since the day my son was born. So a lot of times we think of military families, families that they don't have roots, but they actually, we would come back to Utah and spend time with family at least once a year. Um, they would come out to visit us. We made sure that our kids really had roots, but they also had really open minds because they had lived in different places with different perspectives. So they had all types of friends. Um, and we also really tried to help our children be well-rounded. So my son, um, had a lot of different interests. Um, he would, he liked doing athletic things. So he would run, he played football the year before COVID happened, you know, things like that. He did music. So we, in our house, this is kind of a thing that we just did characteristic of our home is I kind of required my kids to do a couple years of piano before they could learn to do other instruments. And got a little bit most parents get a little bit of pushback on things like that <laughs> we did, and my son and we kind of butt heads a little bit about it and he's like I want to learn a guitar I don't want to learn this I'm like no nope, you gotta do your two years and um I tell you that because he started doing that when he was probably eight nine ten years old somewhere in there um and then after he decided to learn the cello and then after that he self-taught himself the guitar which was always the the plan is that he would have those tools and those skills to you have to self-teach himself. Like once you understand music, you can learn anything. And that became a significant part of our house because um, I have my three younger children are all girls and all my children are about two and a half years apart. Um, but my son Joshua was like best friends with the sibling that was closest in age to him. And they would compose music together. So it was very normal on most days to hear some sort of music going on, singing or um, piano or guitar or the cello and that significantly impacted us after he passed because out of you know four kids one of which is a boy we always kind of assumed he was the quietest because he just wasn't as noisy as the others <laughs> with their silly girl stuff right but it became much quieter after he was gone because of all the music he brought to our home um, so that his personality type was he was very quiet most of the time but he had great social skills he had lots of friends and 
he was quick to cheer somebody up or give a positive word or lift someone up, which we hear that a lot. And sometimes it almost feels like people make that up after somebody's past. But um, we just had so many stories before and after people say, you know, he, I had a hard day and he came, he told me a joke. Um, we have some really cute Marco Polos between him and a couple of his military friends um, that were given to us after just silly things, just great sense of humor. Our home is really built on um, kind of this play hard, work hard mentality. Lots of goofiness, lots of laughter. We would sit down, eat dinner together every night. Um, you know, with the exception of here or there where life is crazy, but we make a habit of checking with our children on a regular basis every day. We would have great conversations in the car when we would drive. We did a lot of road tripping as a military family. So lots of bonding. Our kids were abnormally close to each other. Um, great relationships. My youngest um, was nine at the time when he passed and he had a unique relationship with her because there was a good seven years between them. And he liked to work out a lot, teenage boy. He was like really starting to come in that, like I want to impress girls. And so he was learning the guitar because that seemed really cool and <laughs> working out to build his muscles and handsome kid and uh, just really charming kid and genuine, very authentic kid. Um, but he would work out with his sister and his young sister was kind of more of sciencey and kind of wants to be a marine biologist and things like that. So. I remember one day we were joking about how she wanted to work out with him, but she was testing him on marine biology information. So they were like tutoring each other. And it was just kind of a silly thing. Um, we bought like dumbbells so she could work out with him, but not lift weights that were too heavy for her. And so she would sit on him while he was doing push-ups and just be just silliness, just horseplay. Um, right. But all of that really matters because when you go through a trauma like this, people really have an assumption with any kind of trauma, right? Any trauma we hear in the news, like we, we build a script of what must have happened. And we do this as a protective, if, if I think that's different than my life, it won't happen to me. And so we assign a lot of the script to things that is inaccurate. And one of the really difficult things with, you know, with trauma is that it's usually pretty quickly, pretty sudden of, you know, as chronic trauma is a little different, but um, when it happens, it completely turns your world on end because you were living your life thinking you were safe and yep. your ones were safe. You know that that's not true. You know, you can get in a car accident, you know, people can get sick, but you don't really believe it will happen to you. Right. Um, and then when it does, your world is no longer safe. Um, so you don't know what the rules are anymore. You don't know how to keep everybody safe. And with, with me, um, being a mental health provider before he passed, that was my day job is to help people to safety plan. <clears throat> and I, and I very well knew that everybody was at risk for this. So I guarded against it in my own family and we tried to put all the safety things in place and making sure there was great relationships and our kids' mental health was good and they were well-rounded and had social skills so they could get along with their peers. And, and my son really had all of that. So he had all the protective factors in place. And then we're sitting here reeling because he's gone. And that, yeah. to, to deal with that has been a battle. Um, so it did really kind of put me in this journey of discovering 
I know the subject so much differently now than I did before um, of why it happens and that we can't always prevent these things. So my, my train of thought has kind of stopped there. So I'm not sure what exactly you'd like to know. Um, I, you guys really, your, your whole family was rocked by this. I mean, any family would be. This is a huge loss. How old was he? He was 16. Oh so he was 16 in September and he passed in November. Wow. Um, and you really had no warning signs? No. If, you know, we obviously, when you've been through something like that, you go through and you replay everything and you look for clues and you, and it just was really like, yeah, there were signs there, but they were all within normal range for an adolescent. Right. So there wasn't, especially mid COVID, all of the kids were a little bit more down. They were all isolated from each other. <clears throat> the whole world was questioning, are we safe? Right. Um, and it really just changed everything. So there was a lot of things that masked what we might have been able to see. <clears throat> yeah. But really, other than just maybe a little bit of moodiness, he would kind of start to pull away. A little bit but again that's also very normal in the adolescents because they're trying to develop an identity separate from their parents um right but at no point was he disrespectful or doing drugs or um high-risk behaviors there was none of that i mean he literally he had straight a's before he passed away so wow. he was on on the outside he was meeting all the requirements the only, and I, and I talk about this in the book that I write, that I do talk about some of the things that we did see. And, and looking back, we can kind of see. So if you, if you collected all the little signs, and um, you basically have just like maybe a dozen little things. But over months, you would never have put that together because you're wow. all, we all have bad days. My son was joking with me an hour before he died. Oh my gosh. And I've, I've heard it said so often and most mental health experts um, understand it too, that when somebody is ready to do something like this, they don't go out and talk about it or brag about it or tell their friends that this is what they're going to do. They get silent and they just mm -hmm. do it. And I think that's probably the scariest part is that you can't predict it. It's really difficult to see those signs, especially if you have, you don't have a sign that's, you know, jumping up in front of your face and jumping up and down and saying, hey, look at me. It's silence. It's so quiet. So I, this, this was no doubt absolutely devastating for your kids, especially your daughter. You said they had some, they had a really good relationship. How, as a grieving mother going through such horrible heartbreak, how were you able to still be there for your other kids and to help them to get through it? You know, it's uh, not easy. <laughs> so something I discovered pretty quickly after is that there's two different battles that are being fought. There's the grief and then there's the trauma. And they are they're different, but obviously they're intertwined. So from my experience, hold on, make sure. Sorry, I was having a little bit of issue with my computer here. Um, out of 
So there's my three daughters, me and my husband. Out of the five of us, only myself and my youngest daughter experienced PTSD type symptoms, even though we all had been through the trauma. Right. And that, that was a different battle. Obviously the grief is horrific. Any, any parent or anyone who loves people in their life can imagine grief is hard. If they've grieved, they know it's, it's feels like a mountain you can't climb really. I do think that my, my children were both, they were basically my reason to keep going. Um, I didn't have a choice. It felt like not a good one. Right. And so it became, and I, and I talk about this in my book as well, that sometimes what we need to keep going, um, especially for someone who's dealing with depression or mental health issues is you need to have a purpose and the purpose is very unique. And so for me, there were some days where I said, my purpose is just to keep breathing today because I need that. Yeah. So, so a little bit of patience while I breathe through this. So I don't um, get to the point where you can't understand me. So, um, cause it is very tender still. We're still very much going through that. Yeah. I would say that each, nobody has written a book about how to help your children grieve their sibling. Um, in this kind of circumstance, or if they have, I haven't found it yet. So you don't really have any rules. There's not any um, guidelines for how to survive something like that. So each day is different. Um, I had to put my children's mattresses in my room for the first week. I couldn't even bear to have them sleep in a different room. Um, but it, there was just a lot of just really holding on to each other during that time. Um, but there is something about and I don't think a lot of people really understand this, is that when you lose your child in that way, you lose all of your children. Wow. You lose, so to, sorry, so to be able to get that news and, and to deal with that grief and then have to come and tell your children that is devastating. But you can see the moment that your children are no longer the same children they were before. Right. So you, you have to, it's obviously it's a very um, complicated, painful kind of healing process to accept that and to now parent new children, these children that have been through something like this. The rules can't be the same. So there's a lot of parenting decisions we made in the first year after that we would not have made before, but we weren't parenting children who had been through trauma and who weren't grieving their, their sibling that they've known their whole life. Yeah. Wow. Your poor kids, man. Yeah. It's, there are some beautiful things in the mess of it. There's, times when your oldest, um, sorry, this is a little bit discombobulated here, but um, I had a friend who took my son's shirts and made a quilt for us, um, which was very beautiful. And it was something nice that they could, the kids could hold on to if they needed to and things. But um, my son had a hoodie from a orchestra that he was involved in in the community. And that wasn't part of it. It must, I think right away, my, my daughter had confiscated it. My oldest, the one that was closest to her, Kim. And I think she probably wore that for a week or two after, and then a lot after that. But 
um, my nine-year-old would have nightmares sometimes because of the trauma and just really struggle. And so seeing my, my oldest daughter sometimes would give that hoodie to her. So you would see moments where that they were comforting each other. And that might seem such a small thing, but it's a beautiful thing in that it gives you a little bit of hope. They're going to be okay. Right. It's not, it's not something you're okay with. Well, yeah. But they're learning how to navigate something they should never have had to navigate. And really, you know, I've had a lot of people over the last year and a half, well, more than, well, obviously it's more than a year and a half, ask me what helps me, what, and I, and I could list all kinds of therapy and trauma, things that I've done that have been game changers for me, but really it came down to the people in my life. And there was no way for my family to carry this by themselves. Right. Um, so my kids got to see that pattern of, my son was very involved in our community. So it wasn't just our family. It, it in a way destroyed our whole community because he had leaders at school that just adored him. And he had church leaders that were very involved in his life. And they were shattered by this because it was not the kid that they worried about. He was not the one that was on their minds because he would come and he would show and he would be present and he would smile and he would joke. And he was very, um, from the outside seemed fine. So we had, you know, from his principals to teachers to neighbors, just completely embracing us and just completely shocked. I mean, there was people that we couldn't sleep for days. I mean, I even, the doctor even gave me sleep medication. I could not sleep. And I had friends that told, told me the same thing, that they couldn't sleep. And so there was, I think in, in trials like that, with that extreme level of trauma, you really have to be surrounded by people to help you if you can. But to see my children carry that into our home and them modeling that for each other, I had a therapist that right away that was that helped a lot and she did some trauma informed therapy with me um did some what's called uh brain spotting as so much emdr that really helped it was the difference of i was having nightmares every night to you know to sleep basically which we know can make a huge impact on our mental health and i remember telling her i don't want to cry in front of my children they already have had enough they shouldn't have to have my grief as well and she just kind of called me out on that. I said, this is normal. It would be weird for you not to cry over your son. Yes. Yeah. Um, yep. I agree. They need to know that you're human. Right. And not that I wasn't crying, but I just felt like I needed to protect them. You're, and you're just yeah. scrambling. Honestly, nothing makes sense after something like that. You really just getting from moment to moment. And you don't even know how you got from that moment to the next moment. So you're not really thinking clear at all. There was times my husband and I both experienced this where we would be doing something and then three hours would pass. I'm like, oh, I don't even know. So there's a bit of disassociation there that was happening. Um, yeah. A lot of confusion and brain fog and things like that and forgetting to eat. That was very difficult. So just basic things like that at the beginning. Um, but it was a beautiful thing to see probably a year after I had a moment where something upset me because grief can do that. You'll be fine one minute and then you're not, you're not okay. And I had started crying and I knew I'm like, this is just part of it. Every time this happens, I'm going to cry. 
and I just let it happen. And I had been trying to do that with my children and they just stopped and they, they gave me a hug. We had a moment and then we moved on with our day. Um, and it, it was very beautiful and touching to me yeah. because months ago before that, they would have just, I could see it on their minds. Like if mom, and we all did this, we all kind of treated each other with very fragile hands just because it felt like if we could lose one of our family members this way, everybody's fragile. So if somebody was upset, we just, you were just even more like worried for them. So that was part of the reason why I was worried about causing more grief for them. But it, cause they would look at me with that, that fear. What do we do? Mom's upset. And I think most people can relate to this is that who, whether it's your mom or your dad or whoever took care of you, the person that you thought was strong is now does not appear to be strong. It kind of shakes things up for you and you don't know what to do. Um, and I had my, my oldest daughter was 13 when her brother passed. She's 15 now. And I remember a few months before, a few months ago, she had made a comment and she's like, you're kind of an emotional wreck. And she was just kind of trying to bring some lightheartedness to it. She was just kind of joking. And I just kind of stopped and said, no, um, I'm not a wreck. I still went about my day. I still got up and, and did the things, but I'm always going to cry for my son who's not here. That's always going to be, that grief is always going to be there. Right. And through kind of modeling this grief for them and also living my life the best way I can. So, you know, we give a lot of grace for the rough times. Right. It basically that led up to this moment where I had come home, something had upset me, maybe I had heard something on the radio or something and I had a moment and they just quietly comforted me and then we moved on. And it really was like a turning point for me to see my kids are to this point where they've allowed grief into their lives and they understand that this is now just part of life, but it's not the end of everything. Wow. How long did it take for you guys to get that kind of a control over the trauma and, and to come to that realization? I think that moment was, it had to been at least a year and a half after to that point, but it's not an overnight thing. There's right. gradually comes on to that point where, you know, when they first went through, that would really upset them. And now they just, there's, um, there's a word I wanted to use and it's escaping my mind settled. Okay. So this, this feeling of, they're not carrying that tension in their body. They just, and it's made them more aware of others that they're like, we can comfort sadness and still have space for happiness. And so that's kind of what we're still on that journey. I can't say that we're ever going to fully be there, but in the beginning, there is no room for joy. <laughs> there just isn't. And you have to grow to make that space for that again, that I can laugh at something my child does today, but then later today, um, I'm going to see senior pictures from Joshua's friends and that's not a great awesome. feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's going to suck. Right. And we'll have a lifetime of that, yeah. of those kind of moments. Um, when my son passed, I started getting condolence letters the same time I started getting college recruitment letters. 
Oh. That's right, because he was a straight-A student. Yeah. I think we still get them sometimes, and my, my husband intervenes. <laughs> them for me. <laughs> Tough guy. Yeah. I, I like that about him already. Right. And so many times the loss of a child will actually absolutely destroy a family, too. I'm sure you guys have definitely struggled, but I love to hear that you and your husband are getting through this together. Yeah. That I mean, that had to be a struggle for you guys too. Absolutely, I think that anyone who doesn't gonna, doesn't struggle after something like that is inhuman. Probably, yes. I would say it's probably the most stressful time in our marriage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did do that. we did a few sessions of couples counseling just to figure out how to. Again, I don't ever remember reading a book about how to maintain your marriage through grief. Like I don't remember ever getting that kind of instruction in my life so just having that extra little bit of help and assistance from somebody was helpful to us right but there was also a lot of a lot of what we had to practice is that we grieve completely different our our grief is different because that was his son and he was his father and that means something different than it means for him to be my son yeah yeah absolutely there's times when he'll do things and I'm like I don't understand why that helps you I think it's a little weird (laughs) but you know if it makes you better that's if it helps you soothe that grief then that's and I definitely have things too that he has to practice understanding not that he understands it but just and then he also has to be understanding of how the trauma affects me Um, right and that's, that's been a different challenge again there's the grief which is that heartbreak but it's things as simple as you don't know what the triggers are until you're in them. And then you feel like you're kind of losing your mind a little bit. And there was a time, probably the first time my husband left town after this had been not quite a year, maybe nine months. And he was planning to go on a trip with just a camping trip, not anywhere far with a family member. And I didn't know what was wrong, but I was definitely physically reacting to it. And I, he didn't understand. He's like, why is it a problem for me to go? And I realized that my mind was telling me, if you go, my one of my children will die. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was gone when my son passed. And obviously that's not true, but the trauma doesn't make sense. Just like a lot of times anxiety doesn't necessarily <laughs> logic. It's with trauma, our body stores that memory. And so it usually presents that itself as that kind of panic. I can't breathe. I don't know what what I'm upset about, but I'm reacting to something. And that's what it was. It was a very like just fear. And I couldn't put it, it took me a minute to put it together. I'm like, I'm convinced that that will happen. I can't have you leave yet. And so it took a while longer for him to be able to do that. So some of the healing from the trauma is gradually being able to do those things again and some of them I'll never be able to do um my kids my kids have to be very very um sensitive to me and that I'm like I can't not know where you were at at night like that would have made me anxious beforehand now it will put me into a to a a very bad place so you don't have the luxury of just time me like you'll be back at 11 o'clock at night (laughs) (laughs) um and that's and they're very 
my children are very, very considerate in that way that they, because we have lived through this together, they understand where it's coming from, that it's not mom trying to control us. We're just helping her have a little bit less anxiousness while she's still working through that. Eventually my children will move out of my home. Eventually I'll have to, there's some things you have to work through that trauma enough to do, but there's that patience of it's a process to get there. Yes. So I, I'm a survivor of human trafficking and there's certain parts of I go somewhere or I experience something, just the tiniest thing can trigger these memories and these emotions where all of a sudden I am just a bawling mess and there's nothing that anybody can do or say about it. That's going to help it or make it any different. I just have to work through it. It, Trauma just does that to us. It's just what it is. And it alters the, not just our brains and the way we think, but the way we live our lives. Mm -hmm. So, What's one thing that you wish you could tell someone else whose family is going through what your family went through? You can't prevent all the bad things. Yeah. One of the things that helped, there's a few things that helped us ride out the gate with things it was the language that's used about suicide. We often will use phrases like they committed suicide or they took their own life, things like that. Those sometimes can be very triggering things and nobody means any harm by them. That's not necessarily incorrect, but you know, my nine-year-old asked when I told them what had happened, <laughs> Here's the brutal part is with children, you have to be very honest. Um, you have to tell them the truth. They understand more than we think they do. And just giving them a candy coated version of things is not very helpful in the long run. They can't start the grief process without knowing. And so I had to tell them, I didn't have a lot of information at the beginning myself. And my nine-year-old asked why. And... And at the time, I didn't have any information. He was fine a few hours before. And I just told her, you know, you can't make sense out of senseless things. All I know is that he knew we loved him. And I know he loved us. And that's all I know. And that really carried us. And then as we, I do think that sometimes with trauma, it's good to have information. It's good to have answers but sometimes you don't. And some families never get any information. And so it's really important to hold on to those really important truths that matter more than anything else. I and agree. The other thing that helped us is like in changing the language of, we'll say my son died by suicide. Because when people really start to understand what depression is and mental health issues are, you start to realize that we don't know where the ability to make the choice is and when it's become not how we think of choices. You know, we don't think of somebody with Alzheimer's leaving their care facility as making a choice. We don't think of it that way because we know that's not, they're not in their full capacity maybe in that moment. Right. And depression is very much the same way, but we don't think of it that way because 
one moment, my kid's getting straight A's and the next, like, he would have moments of brain fog where like, hey, I asked you to sweep that up and you like keep forgetting what you're doing. You know, and we all have moments like that, but with mental health issues, you can't see what's happening on the outside always. And he definitely didn't have clarity of thought. It's important to know that and everybody's circumstance is a little different when, when there's a suicide loss. But I do think it's important to hold on to the truth of, of what your relationship was. It's really important to know that people don't die by suicide because there's conflict in relationships. They don't die because they lost a job or a relationship broke up. They had that predisposition beforehand and life stressors becomes overwhelming. And we can't control all those things if we don't know what's happening with somebody. And you don't always get to know. Um, very much like cancer, sometimes we know and it's caught early and sometimes we don't and then they're gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I lost a very dear friend in April to uh, cancer. Um, and that, that one definitely hits close to home for me. When he was going through chemo, he was talking about how he didn't want to continue with chemo. He didn't want to keep going through it. And I told him, I said, well, you need it or you're not going to make it. And he said, what if I don't want to make it? Mm -hmm. It was one of the darkest moments for me. And I know it had to be devastatingly dark for him. Uh, there's, there's a lot of correlation between what we're talking about and cancer. It's, Absolutely. It's, yeah. I think it's definitely helped me to reframe it and to understand it a little better in that we, we can't always know, with, and I'm sure doctors like this too, we, we know so much more now. Cancer is treated so much more successfully now, but there's still so much that like, we can't always predict outcomes. Yeah. yeah. You can have somebody go into surgery and it's like, this should be in and out, done. Everybody, everything should be good. It should be smooth. And then that's not what happens. Yep. Um, with, I actually have people approach me all the time now that either have lost somebody or they're worried about somebody. And I almost feel like the bearer of bad news because I'm like, you have to start taking this seriously because your mind's going to want to tell you that that person's okay and that they're safe and they're probably not, you know, you just, there's no way for you to know, but also know that what can you do and what can't you do? And we, and the one really hard thing about trauma is that, and is it, there's, we don't have the illusion of control anymore. We know that there's things that are outside of, we can do everything right. And I'm not saying I did everything right as a mom. There's no way possible, right? But if you were to meet my child, he just had all the things going for him. And it's hard to be grateful for anything through something like that. But one of the things that we have a weird sense of gratitude about, I say that because it's not, I don't feel like gratitude is the right word, but we don't really have a good English word for it, is that my son wrote a lot before he passed away. And, and he wrote, his note was a long note. And I remember the investigator telling us, and this is an investigator who's investigated homicides and accidents and, and suicides and things like that. And he said, in his years of experience, this was, was different. He said, usually when they write a note, it's a quick, just goodbye type. My son wrote um, two pages. And he wanted people to know what he'd been going through. He wanted people to know that he loved his family. He wanted people to know what his experience was. We didn't have that note for a good few weeks after he died. Oh, um, gosh. 
because they have to investigate and they have to do all their things. And these are things you don't think of if you've not been in that situation. You're like, I didn't know that this is how that goes, you know? Right. Um, so we didn't have that information. So we had a few journal entries. So we did know from he, there was no evidence, even in his text messages, there was very little in there that would even be indicate that he was in distress. His journal entries, there was one entry that he did admit to having suicidal thoughts a month before he died. Um, but we weren't in the habit of reading our kids' journal, <laughs> which right. a whole other thing. Um, but those pages, I've talked to parents who have nothing. And it helps me to know that he did know he was cared about. It did help really solidify that to me that people don't pass away from suicide because they're not loved. Yeah. Um, he wrote about wanting to grow up and help others who are going through what he was going through. So it just really reaffirmed who I knew him to be. Right. His relationship with us. It helped my husband a lot because there's all those doubts that happen with trauma of like, maybe I was too hard on him. Maybe I did this. Maybe I did that. Maybe if I did this differently, blah, blah, blah. And on and on and on. And really, it just kind of helped that we can't control all the things. There are too many things happening in a day. There's too many things happening in individual lives to control all outcomes. We only have influence. Right. Not control over it. And it's absolutely heartbreaking and devastating that he is gone. Um, but it's also somehow to me comforting to know that he has accomplished his purpose by leaving behind such incredible people, you and your husband and his siblings, who are carrying on what it was that he said that he wanted to do. He wanted to help other people. And now that's what you're doing. I mean, you're, you're an incredible human being, Maria. I've got a son who's, um, his birthday's at the end of this month. He's going to be 22 years old. I can't even begin to imagine where my heart and where my brain would be if anything happened to my boy. He's my mm -hmm. one and only, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I had 12 kids. He's still right. a kid. Right. And the fact that you have this internal strength to go and fight and to help other people in spite of your own pain, to become a mental health professional and to help other people to get through this, you're incredible. I knew the second that you introduced yourself to me through that thread that I'd put up, I knew I wanted you on this program and I knew it was an important story. I just, you're just, you just blow my mind. What a huge heart you have and what remarkable, amazing children, total, all of them, they are to have such an awesome mom who loves them, who cares about them, who would do something like move their mattresses into your room so that you could be near them. Because I guarantee as much as you needed that, they needed that too. I think so. I appreciate that. So, I, think sometimes, I think sometimes the choice we have is either grow your heart or it just breaks. Yes. You know? yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. And people tell me all the time that I'm so strong to have survived what I survived. And I always tell them, I said, what, are, what other choice did I have? It was either live or die. Right. <laughs> no right. <much> choice. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. So I do, I do think that there is a definite, uh, I think there are definitely people who know what hell is. <laughs> um, yeah. Strangely enough, it gives me a little bit more not to be too religious, but a belief that there is, there's heaven as well. And, and I, with my children, we experience both sometimes. (laughs) So, And you're allowed to be as religious as you like or need to be. I'm a Christian myself. So I do talk about that from time to time on the show too. Yeah. I believe in heaven and hell and I believe I already lived through the closest approximation of the one and I am ready for the other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the things that happened with trauma is that, that trust that's broken, right? I'm yes. sure you know, I'm sure you know that on a very deep level of, so, some people have the luxury to believe that most people are good and the world is safe and things like that. And sometimes you go through things and you realize it's not so easy to trust. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, it's a choice that we have to make sometimes and I think that I know on a very deep level and in the work that I've done as well, you know, I've seen, I've seen the best and the worst of a lot of things and the best and the worst of people that people are capable of so much awfulness, but they are so capable of so much goodness too. And that belief really carries me in my work because I believe that everybody can heal. I, you'll never be the same, but that's not the goal. Right. With children, I, I hold on to that belief that, they will have so much joy in their life, even though they've been through such horror that most people, hopefully people have to go through. Um, we have to make space for both. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. So your book, Choosing to Live, Waiting to Die, that, is that, does that encompass everything having to do with your son? Does that encompass anything that was before your son, your own uh, traumas that you had to face before that? Um, so when I started writing the book, it was felt like something I had to do. It didn't even feel like a choice at one point. It was just in my mind so much I had to do it. Yeah. And I had to have my son's story out there. Um, but I quickly realized it was more my story than his and that it is his story. There's so much of him in there. There's even a lot of his own words in there, but it's my experience of recovery as well. And that I've kind of put it out there before I finished the book, kind of paneled some people like, what do you guys think about this title? And there were some strong reactions to that title. <laughs> um, yeah. those that have had some experience with depression were like yes that's exactly how I feel and there's a lot of people that were like oh that's kind of scary I don't want to you know we do react to that to, to things we don't want to face head on but the reality is that there are some times in our lives that we're in that place where the choice to live might not be an option right. but sometimes we can choose to wait to die yeah. And yes, that's a horrible truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. But sometimes we wait to die and store in this process of hopefully we heal to the point where we can actually live again. And that was kind of my place after my son passed. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Yeah. As soon as I read the title of your book, it's like, well, I know exactly what that is. Um, right. I think a lot of people would just from reading the title. I think they would know exactly what that's about. Right. Yeah. It Do was you- also, and sorry, it was also in part thinking about so many people would say so many things after somebody dies like that. And they're like, you know, they had their choice. They had their free agency, blah, you know, and on and on and on. And I'm like, depression is not something you choose yeah that's Uh, not knowing you you have choices is the same as not having choices right and that's one of the things that i tell people all the time when it comes to things like human trafficking people say well you had a choice you could have left no no that's not how this works that's Um, a very simplified version yep exactly yep yeah that's that's not life it goes back to the idea that if somebody hasn't experienced that trauma, but you know, they hear about it and they're like, well, we have this natural fear of that nobody wants to go through something like that. We want to wrap it up in this neat package. Right. If I, you know, if I was in that situation, this is what I would do. And then I would be safe. I'm like, well, that's not the experience. That's not <laughs> what the reality of it is. Yeah. So I think that's part of why I feel the need to talk a lot about it because I feel like there's so much damage that's caused um, because we do talk about these things in kind of a glossed over way rather than in, in a way that can actually our fear gets in the way of the conversation and then the conversation stops and then we can't actually work toward healing and actually helping each other so it's a difficult thing to do but it's important right yep. i normally invite the uh the guests on the podcast to read a portion or a passage from the book if they're comfortable with it in your case i'm going to ask you if you would like to do that if you'd rather not do that if you'd rather have me read something later on however you want to play because i know this is a really difficult subject if you would rather not i'm fine with that if you would like to do that i'm good with that too I wouldn't mind doing that, but I don't even have it on me. (laughs) I couldn't even tell you. I might be able to pull up something really quick that. If you'd like to do that, you can, or you can send me a passage later on and I can record it at the end of the podcast as kind of a a sign off message. If you'd prefer to do it that way. That sounds good. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll do it that way. You can just send me what you would like for me to read and I will take care of the rest. Sounds good. So where can people find a copy of your book? As of now, it's just on Amazon. So that's the best place to go for it. Um, It is still available with Kindle Unlimited if people have a membership with that or subscription. Um, So that's the best way to access it. Very nice. So um, is it just in Kindle version? Do you also have a paperback for the people who don't do e-readers? Okay. Yep, there's paperback. I felt really it's important to have that for subjects like that. Sometimes we want to have something in our hands. Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So, and I know that you've got your uh, Amazon page. Do you have any other resources that people can go to if they want to know more and ask about your book or follow along on the journeys? Do you have any kind of public Facebook page or a website or anything like that? Or do you just keep it locked down to the Amazon profile? Right now, that's where it's at. There's okay. plans for more later. Okay. Well, cool. When you get that stuff ready, let me know and I will definitely plug it on my social media channels. I would love to have people uh, support you in this journey. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, Amanda.
Of course. There's one last question that I always ask people um, just to kind of, uh, kind of end things on a good note. So mm-hmm. what's one thing that you love about yourself that is not based on your physical appearance? It's a great question. I think that one of the things is that I do enjoy just continuing learning. I enjoy experiencing what life has to offer and being open to things. That's awesome. That is a really good answer, Maria, especially after everything that you have lived through. You are incredible. Thank you. I love you. You're amazing. <laughs> well, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do this. So to tell, to tell the story. So. Of course, of course. Um, I guess that's it for this time, but if you need anything, definitely feel free to reach out to me. Um, if you at any point want to plug anything else that you're working on, just let me know. Um, I'd, I would love to support you in whatever way I can with this. journey. I really, I really appreciate that so much. Of course. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Maria did supply me with three different short excerpts from her book that I am going to be reading. Each one holds a, a, a significant impact that I think we should all pay attention to and remember and listen to. And then there's one last message that she shared with me. So I'll start with the first one. We hear the word stigma everywhere, but what does it even mean? Is it a negative view of an ordinary thing? So the stigma stops when the conversation before it can even begin. Our own lack of willingness to adapt to new information hurts everyone. Society tends to oversimplify the complex and to complicate the simple. Mental health is extremely complicated, but caring for people isn't. It is easy to attribute mental health issues to one thing when it involves many. And because we don't understand, we forget to care about those who are suffering, even though simple acts are what they need the most. For those affected by suicide, the reason and the illness may be different, but the truth is that people do not die from suicide because they want to hurt people. Suicide is neither a reflection of who they are, the life they lived, or the people in their lives. When this trauma changed my whole world and made me question everything that I knew, I had to reevaluate and build a new life. I also had to build a new me, a me that would be available and able to survive and live in this new reality. There, are, there is a reason those affected by this type of tragedy are called survivors of suicide loss. There were more questions than answers right after Joshua passed, but the first thing that I had to reassure me was the constant care of those around us. It reaffirmed to me that we are all connected through the same things. We all love and we all experience pain and sorrow, and we are not alone. And the final thing that Maria has shared um, are uh, words from her son, Joshua. This might be difficult for me to get through, so be patient with me. For those who have forgotten me, my name is Joshua Burgess. 
I have three little sisters and a loving mother and father. We are a spunky family and I love everyone in my family. Anna, the oldest, is a fighter and I'm so proud of how she has coped with her trials. Nadia, the middle, is so compassionate and I hope she finds a way to live life continually growing stronger and understanding. Sarah, the youngest, is a dreamer and she's the happiest little girl who wants to be a marine biologist when she grows up. I know that she will achieve her dreams even if they change. My mother's the strongest person I know. My mom has so many burdens she carries with her all the time. And while she loses her patience sometimes, she gets so many things done on a regular basis, it's inhumane. She has suffered infirmities, mental and physical, and still she fights for us every day. My father is my role model. My dad doesn't know, but he taught me how to laugh and how I should take care of the people I love. I'm not your typical teenage suicide that doesn't believe that they have accomplished nothing. I firmly believe that if it weren't for my mental state, I would have gone on to do amazing things. Thanks for sticking around for this episode. I know this was a hard one. It was a hard one for me. I've lost people I loved to suicide. Just know that if you're thinking about suicide, or if you've lost someone to suicide, you're not alone. You are not alone. Please talk to someone. There's a lot of people that would be willing to help or just listen. Thank you. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, make sure that you head on over and check out the episode description. You will find links on how you can both support this podcast and how you can actually follow this author on social media. Check out their website, find their books, find their blogs. Whatever it is that they provide me with is what I provide in the episode description. So check it out. Go support our people. <laughs>